God is good. Okay, come on now. We just sang it earlier. Somebody say all the time. God is good. And all the time. See, see, we say that about God's goodness, but what about his holiness? God is holy. And all the time. God is righteous. And all the time. God is great. All the time and all the time. God is great. And I feel so, so blessed to be with you all here this morning. And I, I'm not just saying that. And I'm not just saying that because we get tacos after this. <laughs> Although that is a perk. Amen. Somebody amen free tacos. Amen. <laughs> That's probably the first time I've ever had a church amen tacos. <laughs> but really, we're, we're thrilled to be here with you this morning. I just want to say I, I'm so thankful for my friend, grateful for my friend, and your pastor, Pastor Dexter. And uh, can we give him a hand? You know, he said, uh, God's been moving in, in my life, the ministries I lead. God's been moving here, and God's been moving in his life and his family, and so it's, it's awesome to see. But I'm grateful to be here with all of you. You know, my wife and I were just talking on the way here, on the drive here, and we were saying, we love coming to Bethel Gary for several reasons. You guys are the only campus that amens the announcements. <laughs> I mean, if you amen the announcements, you're ready for God to do something. Uh, I mean, and you, you get into worship. Oh, man. Leanne was talking about posture of worship. You guys get it. <laughs> you get it. And uh, listen, I love going to the other campuses, the other congregations. You know, when I go, I get a, a hearty greeting, a nice firm handshake. Here, you get a hug. <laughs> you're coming to Bethel Gary. You're getting hugged. You're getting loved on. So we love coming to, to Bethel Gary. And I, I'm excited to just bring the word. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. God, we pray that you would have your way. You are holy, holy, holy. And all the time you are holy. You are good. You are righteous. You are just all the time. There's not a second of any day uh, for all eternity where you are not holy and righteous and good. You are great beyond all measure, beyond our imagination. And so we give you all glory because you are deserving of every shred of glory, every shred of praise and worship and honor in this place. In our hearts, we give you glory. Father, I pray that this morning you would do a work. Holy Spirit, do a work and bring us to repentance. God, it's a painful place. It's a difficult process to go through repentance. It is not fun, but oh God, how necessary it is. So would you do a work in our hearts this morning? Unveil any darkness over people's hearts and minds and ears to clearly hear your gospel and to respond to it as you call us to respond in repentance and faith. Lord, something that only you can do, only you can work out. So would you please do a work among us this morning? In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. You know, God is good. He is righteous. He is just. He is holy, and we are not. That's the whole point of the first few chapters of Romans. Are you guys enjoying the book of Romans so far? Man, isn't it good? This book is packed with truth. I mean, deep deep theological truths for life. I love the book of Romans. The book of Romans is, is the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. This is probably the greatest theological treatise that we have on the gospel. And, and Paul is weaving together his case like a master lawyer giving his closing arguments in a courtroom. And so what is his case? What is the argument he's trying to make? Namely this, three words, we need Jesus. Somebody say, we need Jesus. Oh, we need him. Oh, we need him every minute of every hour of every day. We need Jesus. I don't know about you, but I need 
Jesus. And that's the whole point of the book of Romans. Paul is saying we need Jesus. And so he is setting up his argument beautifully. He's leading his readers in a particular direction in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he takes a strategic turn. Listen, I love preaching feel-good sermons. I love preaching sermons that get lots of amens. Amen. <laughs> you guys just amend the act of amening. <laughs> I love preaching sermons that get lots of amens. I, I, I mean, you, you preaching about God's glory. His goodness, his forgiveness, the fact that we are saved and redeemed and have freedom and victory at the cross through Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't love to preach? Any preacher, any pastor that says he doesn't love to preach a sermon that gets lots of amens is what we call in the theological world a liar. I love preaching sermons that get amens. Wait till we get to Romans chapter 8. You want to talk about a passage. Listen, if Pastor Dexter preaches on Romans 8 and you don't amen a hundred times that sermon, something's wrong with you. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. Through Jesus, we are sons and daughters adopted by the king. That's good news. We can cry out, Abba, Father. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor, pre- nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now I'm about to preach. <laughs> I love preaching sermons that get lots of amens, but listen to me. I'm not called to preach to get amens. I'm called to preach the truth. And I'm giving you this as a disclaimer because this morning is not a feel-good sermon. This is sobering, convicting, life-impacting, deep truth. This is uncomfortable stuff. But listen, listen to me. Good news is not good news unless it arises out of bad news. Leanne broke the ice earlier, but how many of you are Cubs fans? Any Cubs fans in here? Was it good news two years ago when they won the pennant, when they won the series, when they won it all? Was that good news? Listen, I, I, I know for a fact, I've only lived in this area, we, well, we've been here about a year and a half, but I know for a fact that Cubs, the Cubs and their fans had to go through 108 years of hot garbage. I mean, season after season after season of heartbreak, but, but didn't that make the good news so good? Didn't that, make the, didn't that make the victory so much sweeter? You know what I never hear about anymore? I never hear about the curse of the billy goat. I never hear about 1984, the season that should have been. I never hear about Steve Bartman. Why? Why do I, why do I not hear about those things? Because they're irrelevant. The curse has been usurped by victory. And so listen, the passage this morning is deep, it is heavy. And we're not talking about the curse of the Cubs, we're talking about the curse of sin. And initially, this is going to seem like bad news, terrible news, but hang tight. Listen, church, hang tight. Because this is what makes salvation by grace so good and our victory in Jesus so much sweeter. So turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, therefore, Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse. 
You can imagine the original readers were listening, and they're agreeing heartily with Paul's condemnation of the wicked people in chapter 1. They're like, yes, go get them, God. Get them wicked pagans. And then Paul just flat out drops the hammer. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Wait, what? Wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute. You were just talking about them. You were just talking about they, the wicked, evil people in our world, the wicked, evil pagans, and you were just saying they. What do you mean you have no, you mean they have no excuse, right? They have, no, no. You have no excuse. In Romans 1, 18 and 19, it says that God's wrath is coming against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Because although God is clearly evident, people choose to ignore him and suppress the truth of his existence. And so verse 20 says, so they are without excuse. So they are without excuse. And it's worded that way. Not so in chapter 2. In the Greek, it's not worded that way in Romans chapter 2. And this is significant because it's worded, therefore, without excuse are you. Now, why does that matter? Listen, back then, they couldn't bold the font. They couldn't italicize. They didn't underline for emphasis. And so they would sometimes restructure the sentence to put a word or phrase at the beginning of the sentence to give it emphasis. I tell people it's kind of like speaking like Yoda. Any Star Wars fans in the house? You know what I'm talking about? Yoda, you, you could say, Yoda could say, the man is great. Or he could, he can go, mm. <laughs> great is the man. That's a terrible, I'm sorry, that was a terrible Yoda. But you get the point, right? He's emphasizing the greatness of the man. So Paul is saying, therefore, without excuse are you. He's emphasizing the fact that we are without excuse. And furthermore, the Greek word for without excuse was a legal term, meaning without a defense, without an argument. We're not innocent. This is not innocent until proven guilty. It is guilty, guilty, guilty. We're without excuse, without argument, without a defense. Those of you who are parents, you know that kids are really good at giving excuses, right? He started it. She touched me first. Well, everyone's doing it, but listen, as adults, we don't get a whole lot better. We still give excuses. They're just more sophisticated, right? Well, nobody's perfect. To err is human. God's forbearance precipitates forgiveness for my transgressions. That's a fancy theological way of saying, well, God will forgive me anyway, so what's the big deal? And so we give excuse after excuse after excuse, and when we try to give excuses to God, we are deliberately insulting God's holiness. So Paul is emphasizing the fact that we have no defense, none. You understand what that means, don't you? He says in chapter 1 that no one could say, well, I, I didn't know you existed, God. I didn't know that you actually were there. God's existence is evident through his creation, and as we'll see next week, through our conscience. God is undeniable, and yet people snuff out the truth. They suppress it. They smother it. They blatantly ignore the truth of God's existence. And rather than seeking God in his ways, they go headlong into idolatry, ungodliness, and unrighteousness. They don't want anything to do with God, and God gives them what they want, namely eternity without him. He says, all right, you don't want anything to do with me. You don't even want to believe I exist. Fine. I'm going to give you that for all eternity. And so people choose hell. This place where God's presence is seemingly unfelt. This place of God's eternal, ultimate wrath against sin. 
And it says that they are without excuse. But now he says, listen to this, church, but now he says, therefore, without excuse are you. This is the state you're in when you have no self-righteous defense to stand on. I have literally preached sermons on the wickedness of our world. And most churches are like, yes, amen. Oh, they're so wicked, those pagans. But the minute I say it, we're all sinners. Crickets. You see, we, we know it, but we don't want to own up to our own depravity. It's like this dark shadow that hangs over us, this dark figure that looms over us that we don't want to acknowledge. But Paul does not let you, does not let me, does not let us off the hook. Look at what he says in Romans 2. Therefore, without excuse, are you, O man. Now, by the way, he's not saying, men, you're sinners, women, you're saints. The word man here is the Greek word anthropos. It's where we get our word anthropology. So he's literally saying, O person, every one of you who judges, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. It would be unwise to expect the world to act like Christians. But Christians should not act like the world. Watch this. Listen, a hypocrite is not someone who teaches good behavior or teaches good morals but fails to live out that teaching perfectly. If that were the case, Pastor Dexter could never come up here and preach. I could never preach. No one on staff could preach. There's not a pastor in our world who could preach the truth of God's word because we can't live it out perfectly. That's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who teaches good behavior, sees others not living by that standard, condemns them for not living by that standard, but then they themselves don't live by that standard. That's a hypocrite. And hypocrites usually justify themselves. They disparage the behavior of others. But with complete spiritual blinders on, they justify their own sinful behavior. Oh, how hard it is to breathe under the mask of hypocrisy. Brennan Manning said it this way, the greatest single cause of atheism in our world today is Christians who Listen, who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So I ask you, friends, listen, do you have spiritual blinders on? Maybe you condemn the moral decay of our society while your internet browser is filled with unsavory websites that you've clicked on. Maybe you complain about the degrading family values in our schools or in entertainment. Meanwhile, you fight vehemently like cats and dogs with your spouse out of selfish ambition. Maybe you scoff at the obscene amount of money that celebrities have in their gaudy mansions, but inside you is growing this infectious infectious disease of greed and selfishness. How can we be righteous in one area of our life and completely oblivious in others? God, help us. We have spiritual blinders on. It's complete and utter self-righteousness. Listen, church, listen. They are not the problem. We are. It's so easy to play the blame game and look down our noses at the world and point out its brokenness and without looking introspectively at our own. That's why Paul goes from talking about them, they, in Romans 1. I mean, mean, check it out. Go back to Romans 1. It says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to the impurity 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. But then in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O person, O every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He goes from talking about they, them, to you in chapter 2. He's talking about the rebellious in chapter 1 and to the the, the religious in chapter 2, he's talking about the sinners and, and the, the, the scoundrels in chapter 1 and talking about the sanctimonious in chapter 2. Oh, how easy it is to pass judgment on others and remain in censorious self-denial. I want you to do me a favor. Point at your neighbor. Point at them. Just point your finger at them. I mean, really get up in their face. <laughs> just really point at them. I mean, don't pick their nose, but, you know, just get, get up in their face. How many fingers are pointing at them right now? One. Now, excluding your thumb, how many are pointing back at you? Three. You see, now, unless you're pointing like this. <laughs> see, that's how politicians point, by the way. I think there's, maybe there's a reason for that. <laughs> One finger pointing at them, three pointing back. Here's the point. No pun intended. The problem isn't out there. It's in here. And so the rebellious and the religious have the same problem, depravity, our depravity. God was to be on the throne of our hearts, but we didn't think he was enough, so we put ourselves in his place. Self became God. And a cancerous decay occurs inside of us that warps and twists everything we hold dear. And so sin gets its twisted, gnarly, dark fingers around our hearts tainting everything that we see, altering how we view ourselves and how we view others. We cannot judge the wickedness of the world from up on our soapbox because we've all wallowed in filth with the rest of the world. C.S. Lewis gave this analogy. He says that, imagine you see some children in a back alley somewhere, and they're next to the nastiness, the garbage, the filth, the trash. They're playing in the mud, and they're making mud pies. And you go up to them and say, kids, what are you doing making mud pies? Wouldn't you rather go to a, on a vacation to the beach? It's so much more beautiful there. Wouldn't you rather go to the beach? And they're like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm fine here. See, that's chapter one, right? No, no, I'm fine in the filth. I'm fine in the garbage. I'm fine in the muck. I know that God's grace is more glorious. I know the gospel is better, but I'm fine right here. I'm content. Now, let's take that analogy a step further. Imagine one of the kids is like, hey, check out my mud pie. It's pretty good, right? My mud pie is better than yours. My mud pie is more superior to yours. That may be, but it's still a mud pie. Listen, how can we look down on others from our pedestal when the gospel drives us to our knees? The gospel uproots any air of superiority. Church, is our world sinful and depraved? Come on now, is it depraved? Oh, yes. Oh, Yes, but we are not part of the solution. We're part of the problem. Now, we're going to skip over verses 3 and 4 because we're going to come back to those verses. That's kind of the crux of the whole passage. But let's skip down to verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, it's quite easy to get someone to admit that they are a sinner. 
unbelievers will readily acknowledge that they're sinners because they know, hey, nobody's perfect. Anyone can acknowledge that they are a sinner, but it is God who must awaken a person to realize the gravity of their sin. And this verse says that wrath is accumulating, building up. It's getting bigger and bigger. Now, whose wrath? Yours? Mine? No, it's God's wrath. Friends, this is terrifying. Oh, what a terrifying thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Our hard and unrepentant hearts are storing up God's wrath upon us. This is literally, literally the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 6 when he talks about storing up your treasures in heaven. Meaning that eternal treasures are compounding in heaven as you live for Jesus in the here and now. But Paul is not talking about storing up treasures. Every single sin that we commit, and how many do we commit every week, every day, every hour, every single sin we commit is building up, storing up, compounding God's wrath upon us, building up against us if, if, listen to me, if our hearts are hard and unrepentant. Listen, when you offend someone, the magnitude of the consequence of that offense is proportional to the greatness of the one you offend. Now, that's a long statement, so let me say that again. When you offend someone, the magnitude of the consequence of that offense is proportional to the greatness of the one you offend. Let me give you an example. Let's say you see a baby with a lollipop, and you literally steal the candy from a baby. (laughs) You literally take it out of her hand. Give me that. Give me that candy. Now, you're going to receive the consequences of that action. You're going to get a purse smacked upside your head from the mom, as you should. You're receiving the just payment. The punishment is proportional to the one you have offended. So you're going to have to give back the sucker and say, I'm sorry. Here you go. Now, imagine the Queen of England is in town. And the Queen of England is doing a parade through town, and there are thousands of people lying in the streets. And you're there. You're there on the sidewalk, and you're trying to make your way through. You make your way through the crowd. You get past security somehow. You even get past the royal guards. And there she is sitting on the queen's car in this convertible. She's sitting there doing the queen's wave, wearing her queen's crown. And you run up, and you snatch the crown off of her head, put it on yours, and take off running. Now, first of all, that would be hilarious. (laughs) But second, you're going to be tackled. You're going to be thrown to the ground. You're going to be cuffed, and you're probably going to be put in prison for several years, and I have to pay a hefty fine at minimum. Why? Because the punishment not only fits the crime, but it's proportional to the one you have offended. Listen to me. We have offended a great, the great and holy, perfect, righteous, eternal God. And because of that, the punishment is proportional to the crime. And so we deserve punishment that is eternal and great. Folks, we deserve hell. Don't ever forget, we deserve hell for our sins. The refusal to repent, that is the refusal to surrender and give up the notion of self-righteousness, is a blatant refusal of God's redeeming love, which is why self-righteousness is so insidious and deceptive. Listen, this is the next point. Self-justification is damning. It's damning. Look what he says in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath 
and his fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Again, the Jew first and also the Greek, the Gentile, for God shows no partiality. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This sounds like salvation by works, does it not? Do good and you get good things. Glory, honor, peace, eternal life. Do bad and you get bad things. Tribulation, distress, wrath, fury. Is that what he's saying? No. Listen, works are the lifestyle expression of the true nature of a person's heart. And so he is describing the character of a person seeking God versus the character of someone looking out for numero uno, looking out for self. You can either be God-seeking or you can be self-seeking. You cannot be both. And unfortunately, friends, by our sinful human nature, we are all self-seeking. Which means, sadly, we get what verse 8 says we should get. We deserve God's wrath and fury. Now, we can play the comparison game all we want. We can play the comparison game, and we tend to do that to, to, to determine our righteous stature. Well, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm no Hitler. I'm somewhere in between, so therefore I'm good, right? And we think of big sins like murder, rape, treason, adultery. We think, well, as long as I don't do those, I'm good. That's not how Jesus defines righteousness. Let me, let's, let's do it this way. Let's think about the second five, the last five of the Ten Commandments. How many of you have ever murdered someone? Show of hands. Really? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus drastically expands the definition of murder. He says, if you've ever had an unjust, unrighteous, angry thought towards someone in your heart, guess what? You just committed murder. Now, I ask again, how many of us have committed murder? How many of us have committed adultery? You see where I'm going, right? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you have looked lustfully upon someone in your heart, you've committed murder. Committed adultery? If you haven't raised your hands yet, go ahead and raise them. That's called lying. That's the next commandment. It says, uh, if you have been jealous over other people's stuff, you've coveted other people's stuff. How many of you have coveted? How many of you have stolen something? How about blaspheming? So listen, listen. Dexter, I think we need to call security. Because we got a bunch of murderers, adulterers, liars, thieves, coveters, and blasphemers in here. So how are we going to play the comparison game? Listen, you can play the comparison game all you want as long as you're comparing yourself to the righteous standard. The one who is perfect, spotless, blameless, righteous son of God. You compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to Jesus. Are you as perfect and holy as Jesus? No? Then we deserve God's just wrath and fury. And God shows no favoritism. It says he shows no partiality. The word for favoritism or partiality is literally made up of two words in the Greek. To receive and face, to receive face. And so quite literally, it's saying that God will not be swayed by a person's face. I'm convinced that my daughter is a Jedi. <laughs> Again, Star Wars fans, you'll like this. I'm convinced my daughter is a Jedi because she knows this Jedi mind trick known as the puppy dog face. 
She turns four this month, and she has perfected it. And so nine times out of ten, it doesn't work on me. I have my daddy shields up, my daddy defenses. It doesn't work on me. Like, no, honey, you can try that all you want. But every once in a while, she's able to slip one through. So, for example, we'll be putting her to bed. Say, sweetie, you got to go brush your teeth. You got to go wash your face. Get your pajamas on. You got to go re- get ready for bed. So she'll say, but daddy, can I just please stay up and watch a little bitty cartoon with you? <laughs> and every once in a while, it just works. Her voice starts quivering. Her lips purse up. Her eyebrows furrow. Her eyes get as big as saucers as they fill with tears. And a single tear (laughs) falls down her rosy red cheeks. Please, Daddy, can we just stay up and watch one little cartoon? Now, inside, in my mind, here's what's going on. Warning, warning. Daddy's shields are down. Daddy defenses are down. We're taking on water. We're being hit with a puppy dog face. Warning, warning. And I'm just like, oh. Okay. <laughs> and I give in. I give in to the puppy dog. See, Jedi mind trick. I give in. I give in to that puppy dog face. It works on me. Listen, no such appeal would work on the Lord. Politician can, politicians can buy votes, but God cannot be bought. Governments can be pressured, but God will not be pushed. Leaders can be bribed, but God cannot be swayed. <laughs> cannot happen. You, you understand what this says. That means that you, I, we will not be declared righteous because of our social status, because of our ethnicity, because of our race, because of our financial status, our political party, our gender. It's not like we're going to go up to God and say, God, you know, I, I, I'm rich or I'm poor, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm Baptist, I, I, I'm uh, Methodist, Nazarene, uh, non-denom, you know, uh, Church of Christ, Presbyterian, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm white, I'm black, I'm Latino, I'm uh, Middle Eastern, I'm Asian, I'm, I'm popular, I'm an outcast, I'm Republican, I'm Democrat. Nothing about us, nothing in and of ourselves is going to make God go, oh, whoa, whoa. Right this way to the pearly gates, my friend. Nothing. Do we have anything about us that we can use to justify ourselves? No, no, a thousand times no. God shows no partiality, no favoritism. He gives no preferential treatment. He is just, and he will judge all fairly. So Paul is saying that no one can say, well, because I'm Jewish, I'm good. And we might say in our modern context, well, because I go to church, I'm good. I'm with excuse. I'm exempt from God's wrath. No, you're not. You cannot earn special favor from the Lord. All accolades, all attributes will not help in your defense, not church attendance, not religious background, not family heritage, not how many charitable deeds you've done, not how many times you read through the Bible, not how much you pray, not your traditions, not living in America, not calling yourself a Christian, not the fact that your grandmama is a Christian. All of that is self-justification. And God sees through your religious facade, and he shows absolute impartiality. He judges all evenly. It's been said that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. No one can prop themselves up at the foot of the cross and say, oh, look at how better I am than you. No. We're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. So these verses are setting up the argument that we are sinners in need of Jesus because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves righteous. And so it all points to our brokenness, our need to depend on someone else's perfect righteousness. 
So this drives us back to verses 3 and 4. Let's circle back there, verses 3 and 4. Do you suppose, oh man, oh person, you who judge those yet do those things yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of, listen, his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is addressing those who think that they are above God's justice. Those who think, well, God is forgiving. He loves me. He's kind. He would never punish me for my sins. Paul is saying, you're half right. God is loving. He is forgiving. He is kind. But don't presume that because he is kind and patient that he's not also just. His patience is not a license to sin. His patience is not widespread approval of our sinful lifestyle. And so he is merciful. And his kindness should give us pause to consider his greatness so that we throw up our hands and say, God, I don't deserve you. I don't deserve you, Lord. I deserve hell, but I know that I need you. I surrender to you. Here's all the junk, the trash, the mucky muck of my life. I give it all to you. I need you. In fact, the whole point of God being patient with us and showing us kindness and mercy is to lead us to repentance. Some of you may be in here and you're struggling, especially in this passage, with viewing God as this harsh, cold-hearted judge. Listen to me. God does not delight in punishment any more than we delight in punishing our kids. Verse 4, we see a glimpse into the good news. We see a glimmer of hope. We see the gospel. If God, think through this with me, if God in his infinite justice cannot tolerate unrighteousness, which we see in chapter 1, how is it that we are not incinerated the moment we first sin? It's because God is incredibly patient and, as the King James Version says, long-suffering. I like that word, long-suffering. You ever had someone pestering you or agitating you for a long time? You're on a road trip, your kids are behind you kicking your seat, are we there yet, are we there yet, are we there yet? And you're just like, Lord, I'm long-suffering. I am suffering for a long, long, eventually your long-suffering runs out, your patience runs out, right? And you turn around and you're like, I will turn this car around and we'll go home. God is long-suffering. He suffers the foolishness of mankind for a long, long, long time. God could have wiped us out in his wrath against sin, but he doesn't. The fact that we are all here alive and breathing is just an act of mercy and grace and kindness. See, his kindness is the catalyst to awaken repentance within us. Jimmy Needham said it this way, are you shocked at the penalty of sin? Be more shocked at the mercy of him. God's kindness is a beacon of grace flashing brightly. Turn to me. Repent. 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 Turn to me. So you must own up to not just the problem of sin, but your problem of sin. Repentance is brokenness over your sins, and you have to acknowledge that you are under destruction. You cannot save yourself. Repentance is surrendering any notion of vain self-righteousness. I have found that there are three camps of people when I'm preaching in a congregation like this, three groups of people when they hear a message like this. There's the self-justifying, the self-pitying, and the self-crucifying. See, the self-justifying will try to give a defense as to why they're actually righteous. Well, that's the way I grew up. 
Well, I had this home life, or I had this go on, or they're trying to give excuse or defense or argument. Listen, if you're trying to do that, have you been sleeping during this sermon? Because that's what this passage is addressing. We cannot justify ourselves. And then there's the self-pitying. The self-pitying will, help, will, will hear this and say, oh, woe is me. I am such a wretched sinner. God could never love me. If he's known what I thought, did, and said, why would he ever save me? Well, he does know what you have done, thought, and said, and he still came to save you. See, both the self-justifying and the self-pitying are both forms of self-righteousness. And so if that's you, repent of those ways of thinking and acknowledge that you need Jesus. By the way, repentance, which is surrender, it doesn't just end the moment you get saved. It's for life. It's ongoing. It's not like, well, I got saved. I'm done with that repentance and belief stuff. Now I can just live how I want. No, no, no. It is ongoing and daily. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross. How often? Daily. And follow me. It is daily saying, oh, Lord, I need you to crucify the sinful flesh in me. It keeps rising up. Would you mortify these sinful desires within me? Kill them. As Jesus was on the cross hanging there and by faith, I so identify with him. Would you help me to die to my old self? Crucify the old self in me. It's constant repentance and surrender to him. So will you be self-justifying, self-pitying, or self-crucifying? God's kindness leads us to repentance. But listen, if self-justification is damning, repentance is oh so freeing. 